Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. And I'm Nico Espina. So Nico and I sat down today with Alice O'Connell. Alice is a third-year law student at Loyola University Chicago, and she was very gracious to come on the show and share her experiences as transitioning to a woman. And just as a quick note, this is the first episode where we're using brand new mics, so the levels are a little bit wonky in the first 10 minutes, but then I get them all leveled out and the sound quality gets much better, but it shouldn't be too noticeable. Right. I also want to bring to the listener's attention that at the very beginning of the podcast, I used the word transsexual. During the break, Alice corrected me and made, made me aware that that's... Uh, uh, der- fallen out of fashion. Fallen out of fashion. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm bilingual for those that don't know. I was just, I think, making a literal translation because in Spanish it doesn't have that um, baggage. So Right, right, right. So th- this entire podcast was basically a learning process for Nico and I, but the conversation was very amicable. We learned so much. I think this is honestly one of our best episodes. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So uh, you guys are really enjoy this, and Alice is just such a well-spoken and really honestly courageous person and it was a pleasure to sit down with her for the time that we got to sit back relax enjoy and give it up for the great and powerful alice o'connell miss alice hello thank you so much for coming on the show glad to be of service so we were just talking actually before that you were one of the first people I met, mm-hmm. and then Nico, you were saying, yeah, I met I met Alice. I think she's the first person I met from our uh, year uh, in one of the Loyola orientations. Yeah, so. so we all have a rich history together. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I used to get so nervous around you, though. I can't imagine why. <laughs> I don't think I'm particularly intimidating. No, it was because I thought that you thought I would not be accepting of who you are, which is a fair assumption to make just based on my personality. I don't think we're, we're gonna get we're gonna get real on this on this show real early. Uh, I don't think it was anything about you specifically. I think being in a law school environment was a little intimidating just in general, mm-hmm. and having this opportunity to sort of redefine who you are as a person professionally as well as socially. But not feeling comfortable or safe in doing so initially, it, it, it's a jarring thing, and it's tempting to kind of isolate uh, and and do your own thing instead of trying to reach out and forge those connections that are really so vital for attorneys to be just in general. Oh yeah, but especially like the the difficulty of law school is is almost insurmountable if you're trying to do it on your own too. But I just I didn't know how to bridge that gap like where like what could I say to convince you that I was actually like no I'm totally cool with like who you are like all these things you know so like I used to just get so nervous because I don't like it when people think that you know have an idea of who I am not to say that you actually did but I do feel like we've actually come a long way like there was nothing really preordained about our friendship necessarily it was very deliberate I think on both of our parts do you agree with that oh, I'm inclined to agree I yeah. think um we, we've come a long way, I think. Just generally speaking, I think law school has been a very formative experience for a lot of us. I think it is inherently so. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't change a little as a human being during law school, then 
I, I question whether it was time well spent. Right. That said, I've changed a lot. Yeah, you uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say this, but uh, and then, I, well, maybe after I say this, we'll back up a little bit. I knew that, like in the back of my mind, that at some point you were going to start presenting more as a woman. Right. And but I totally didn't anticipate or I underestimated how profound of an effect it would have on me when I first saw you. I was just like, oh, I get her now. <laughs> I was just like, I felt like I was finally talking to the right person. You know what I mean? Well, I'm really glad to hear that because <laughs> I was afraid of the opposite effect. I was afraid of, oh. Yeah. Like, <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it really, really deeply affected me. I was just like, because I, you're the first transgender person I've ever met and I didn't know what that was going to be like and you know it, it, it's a it's anxiety provoking when you're I guess uh, going into uncharted territory mm-hmm. and you don't know what what it's going to reveal about yourself I, the first time I saw you th- this semester I was just like oh okay this makes a lot more sense I still don't know the other parts of it like which we'll get into but uh just as like an outsider and somebody who's friends with you, it was so much more moving and like easy to accept than I thought it would be, you know? Um, So what were one of your fears um, that were kind of like washed away as time passed? Well, I guess the biggest fear was just that it was going to be difficult, that like it was going to be hard to separate the person I met from the person that you are... looking like these days what was first revealed to me was like oh it's actually the same person mm-hmm. and actually this is a more authentic version right. okay. of that person mm-hmm. so you, it's, it's not so much the person you knew but it's the person you thought you knew well it was the person that i've been waiting to meet okay that's how i think about okay. it but anyway so alice let's back up let's not get too far ahead of ourselves why don't you tell us the listeners and me and nico a little bit about just who you are and where you're from what drove you to law school, and then maybe towards the end get into why it is that I wanted to invite you on the show today. Sure. Well, first of all, on behalf of uh, the Trans Agenda LLC, I'd like to formally apologize for us taking so long to reach you. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, we, 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 we'd sent cards in the mail. We wanted to establish that connection early on. I stay off the grid yeah, on purpose. Well, understandably yeah, understandably yeah. so. I got, I, you know, so. <laughs> uh, so my name's Alice O'Connell. I am a 3L at the Loyola School of Law, which is how all of us met. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, despite having been born here in Chicago. I uh, spent all my formative years in Nashville, uh, really kind of coming into my own, or not, as the case may have been. Um, <laughs> and I knew from a very young age that my gender identity was not concordant with this image of myself that I had been presented both biologically and socially. I, it was just an inherent thing. I knew from probably the time I was 11 or 12 years old, that was very quickly and swiftly discouraged uh, in that environment. We, being my family and my scholastic peers at the time, were very quick to ensure that it was a phase, that it wasn't a thing. And so I remained fairly reticent in my willingness to present, both socially and physically, those opinions and those beliefs. However, I still knew it to be true, and... Ultimately, I decided to go to law school because I knew that a lot of trans individuals, both trans women and trans men and those who falleth betwixt, 
um, <laughs> are not afforded the kind of opportunities that I've been given. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very rare for individuals who do not fall onto the typical orientations in the gender bi- or in the gender spectrum, excuse me, to be able to do things like go to law school, to represent people, to enact policy and influence policy. So really, I wanted to pursue that education and use it as leverage to give back, not just for my own benefit, but for the benefit of anyone else who might be struggling to do the same. Mm-hmm. And then, Nico, you specifically wanted to be part of this interview, too. Yeah, I don't know if I, you want to. Right. Yeah. So, so the whole subject's um, interesting and personal to me because I also have a transsexual sister, and she has a similar story where she knew from a very young age uh, that there was something different about her and it was discouraged. Um, there were well intentions both from the family side and from society, but uh, uh, misunderstood. They came from a misunderstood place. Uh, and it took her a while for her to come to terms with it and take that, I guess for lack of a better word, a leap of faith uh, and just trust in herself and what she knew all along. I think from the moment I found out, which was um, not um, long ago, I was immediately accepting, and my so has my family been very accepting of the whole transition. Uh, and I think uh, what Alice just said resonates too, which is not many transgender people uh, have the same opportunities that my sister and Alice has been granted, and what they choose to do with their time, I think, is interesting. So, so that's that's why I'm mainly I'm here because this is. This is uh, hits on a, on, a, on a personal level as well. Right. And I guess to kind of circle back to what I was saying earlier, I guess I, I alluded to it a little bit, but I specifically wanted to reach out to Alice because I don't know anything about this. And mm-hmm. I'm always looking for ways to be able to better communicate with the people I like, to have more knowledge on a subject, and uh, just be able to connect with people on a more human level it's not an inherent skill that I have, but I can do it. I can kind of rationalize my way to being able to embody certain ideas. And I didn't want to waste the opportunity to speak with somebody as well-spoken as yourself, Alice, to, <laughs> to be able to do that. So I'm really glad that we were able to put this group together this morning. I think that this will be an interesting conversation. It'll be a fun conversation cut with brief moments of enlightenment. But <laughs> well, would there, would, there, there would have been someone more qualified available? I... <laughs> I will say, uh, just up front, I think it's important to stress that the transgender community, insofar as it exists, is not a monolith. Um, right. Whatever yeah, opinions Absolutely. I express here, mm-hmm. um, while I feel very strongly about them, may not necessarily hold true for others who identify as trans. There is a huge intersectional aspect to anyone's gender identity. I mean, mm-hmm. so much goes into how we formulate these ideas of ourselves and how we present that idea socially. Uh, And it seems disingenuous to suggest, not saying that you were, just some people do do this, and it's something I try to caution against. It's disingenuous to suggest that any one trans person can be the authority on the trans experience, any more so than any one person of any other kind of identity can be representative of that experience. Uh, We can only speak to our own formulations of what we've felt and what we've seen, and hopefully I'll be able to shed some light thanks to what I've been through. Yeah, I think that, that that's really important to say. And there's going to be moments where I flub up during this interview. I hope that everybody who's listening, everyone sitting around this table, gives me the benefit of the doubt because 
I'm not perfect. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I really do want to learn more about this, specifically you. So you mentioned that you knew from a young age. What, what were the indicators like for that? I mean, it's hard for me to get out of my own solipsism and, and understand how somebody can know something like that, but you seem to be pretty firm epistemologically that you knew. Oh, gosh. Well, I think that it is less of a sort of conscious recognition and more of a realization over time for me. I think Mm -hmm. there was never a single incident at which point I went, oh, I get it now. Mm -hmm. It was a constant reality. It Mm -hmm. was a ever-evolving element of my identity that I didn't realize was wrong until I got older and started understanding sort of the implications of what gender was and what gender performance was. It Mm -hmm. wasn't that I realized that I was a woman. It was that I realized that I was trans, so to speak, which is to say I always assumed I was a woman. And only when I learned that society thought that was incorrect did I start understanding what it meant to be trans. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting is that you realized you were trans. It's not that you came to a realization that you were a woman. I don't did. Your sisters used so for my for my sister it was very similar in the sense that she knew from a very young age that something was different about her. Uh, I I have two other brothers, so we're four in total. We would all have you know rough play. She was never really into that. Uh, she described wearing men's clothes as having an itchy sweater. Something just didn't feel right. Uh, she was even from a very early age. She was very. Uh, attracted to wearing loose woman clothes but she didn't really know why she was feeling different again and I think that's why my parents would always hone in on it as a phase or these are just phases that kids go through as she grew up she you know the internet obviously (laughs) opens up your world and she started to come up to terms as gender identity trans and she's like wow this is this is what I have, and there are many, many people out there that have similar things as me. Uh, and, and yeah, she, she, it was the realization of, I guess I am a trans, and I guess I am a trans woman, and that's who I am. I think that the point on the internet is very important. I think my personal experience was being exposed to sort of nascent online communities that were just beginning to unpack the language and the social status quo that the LGBT community in general and the trans community in particular was attempting to assign to itself. Um, We talk a lot in, I call it capital D discourse, where people are trying to sort of flesh out the academics of what it means to have a certain identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talk a lot about the importance of language and Mm -hmm. It's one of the big hot button issues that you see in the media involving trans folks uh, these days is the use of pronouns. And Mm -hmm. I think it is important to realize that something as seemingly insignificant to a number of people as the usage of pronouns really informs what it means to present and live as your identified gender. Not because the words themselves have any inherent meaning, but rather because every culture, every society determines what it means to express gender in its own intricate ways. 
And that expression is inexorably tied to the inherent understanding of self that all individuals have, be it male or female or non-binary or something else entirely. And so forging that connection between language and thought, between presentation and personal truth, is vital for the formulation of any sort of identity moving forward. And when we deny that reality to especially children who are struggling so mightily to determine their own sense of self and to determine who they are and what they want to be in the world, when we deny that reality to them, it can be hugely damaging. So the use of language is so vitally important. I, I agree with you 100%. So the, um, I guess the concern I have here is I think absolute extremes are very dangerous. So if, if you yeah. were to say there are two mm -hmm. sexes, male, female, and you have to fit into this, that's a, that, from my point of view, that's a very extreme take on the subject. On the other hand, if you take the stance where it is up to the individual to decide uh, what's their pronoun, uh, it can create this slippery slope, right? I think the city of New York right now acknowledges 33 uh, pronouns that people can identify as. Um, and I can, I can see someone who's very young, who's trying to understand themselves. And uh, right now they're limited to those 33 pronouns. But where, what are the rules of the game? Where do we... Like what's the limiting principle? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't know if, if you have anything... I don't know that there that. has to be a limiting principle. Mm -hmm. um, Puff Daddy has changed his name... 17 times and nobody seems to have a problem with that right i think that we ascribe a permanence to language that doesn't exist mm. i think we are so attached to and i'm using the royal we here just mm. sure yeah, our no. society Understood. um is so attached to the sort of roots that a reliable consistent linguistic framework allow and rightfully so that we are hesitant to rock the boat, as it were, for a group of people who, as far as we can tell, are not numbering very high in the community. That being said, we change language all the time. I, I hear this argument a lot. Well, he and she applies to chromosomes. That's patently untrue. I mean, when is the last time that you saw an individual on the street and said, well, before I address you with pronouns, I, I, I need to know what your chromosomes are. Mm -hmm. Language has always been about presentation and has always been about understanding what an individual wishes to suggest themselves to be. Now, is it true that if you decide to make a bespoke pronoun, uh, a zigzer, as some of the more radical individuals decide on, that it will be difficult to get the community to acclimate to that? Absolutely. I think that the ex the expectation that people will just be able to pick it up like that is an unfounded one. However, I also think that any given community has to make the effort to accommodate an individual's interests uh, in that regard, because ultimately it is their identity. The community doesn't get a say in it. They, they are there to acknowledge that people get to self-determinate and people get to self-define. If the language that they were born within doesn't afford them the opportunity to do that, then why shouldn't it be on them to change that language? There were so many things that you just said that I want to comment on because a lot of it was ringing bells in my head because anybody who listens to this show will know that I have really strong libertarian inclinations. And in the lead up to this interview, I was thinking about this topic and there's so much in line with 
what you just said and the philosophy behind transgenderism inherently that really falls well into the libertarian camp. First, you said the use of language in a lot of ways helps us to edify our own identities, you know, and I, I wholeheartedly agree that's a free speech argument. Like, if you cannot speak, you don't have the ability to think, and if you don't have the ability to think, then Descartes would say you don't exist. So, I mean, there's I, I really am troubled by the fact that libertarian and traditionally more right-leaning ideologies haven't opened up the tent and broadened it because I feel like transgenderism really fits well under it. I, I know that it's sort of the, uh, an issue of the left at the moment, but I, I don't see why that's inherently needs to be the case. Secondly, you guys both hit on the internet, and I, I really I want to kind of drill down on that a little bit more because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot there. It seems to an outsider that all of this transgender activism came out of nowhere. But what I'm kind of hearing you say, Alice, and what your sister kind of experienced was that that community was so diffuse before that they didn't have the ability to communicate and hammer out a lot of these definitional things and kind of form their own community until the proliferation of the Internet. How, how important do you think that the Internet has been for trans activism and the trans community and really figuring out and navigating this, what I'm sure is a terrifying or confusing time on an individual level, but realizing that there are so many other people out there similarly situated? I think the Internet is at once the best and the worst tool of the past hundred years. With regard specifically to trans activism, I, I don't think that one can argue that anything has been more beneficial than the advent of the internet and spaces within it. If only to allow trans individuals the opportunity to participate in communities where they feel accepted. I know that the uh, some communities, especially online, are not fond of the notion of a safe space, the notion of a place where one can go to speak without recourse and to explore their own ideas and identities. But that's so vital for a trans individual whose identity isn't accepted elsewhere. As it is vital for any minority, any victim of systemic or societal oppression that cannot freely speak in other environments. Uh, The internet creates that. The internet allows those communities to self-determinate. At the same time, the internet also offers, and this is purely anecdotal, I don't have any stats to back this up, the internet offers a very tempting haven from the realities of the world. Mm. And people, people talk about echo chambers, but that's not necessarily what I mean. I more mean that it is tempting for the individual who so deeply abhors their existence in the physical space by the very nature of who they are. They're dysphoric. They're unhappy with how they take up space in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be clear, not all trans individuals are dysphoric, but many are. The internet negates that. The internet allows you the opportunity for social interaction, for bond building, for self-actualization without embracing or dealing with that dysphoria, with that discomfort. And that can be really captivating. That can drive individuals, trans or otherwise, to remain on the internet and to remain sequestered in their own spaces uh, without ultimately coming to the decision to return to the world, to put themselves out there after they have well-established themselves and who they want to be. That's so interesting. 
Right. I mean, th- I think what you just said is true of anybody who habitually, you know, goes on the internet is that absolutely we can draw ourselves a bath of warm milk and just seep in it if we want to. But so you brought up the, this concept of sta- safe spaces, and uh, I, I like what you said there, which to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it sounded like you you were making an argument for the fact that there is a time and a place for a safe space, that it's okay to retreat to your corner and to cultivate certain ideas or, or to edify yourself or, um, I guess, work on what you, what you want to say and how you want to say it. But ultimately, it sounds like you're saying that you need to reconcile those ideas with the rest of the world, that you have to negotiate your, uh, I guess, negotiate your I- ideology with how things actually are. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? or Yes and no. I think it is important to reconcile those ideas with the rest of the world in order to make progress in society. Mm-hmm. I would never suggest that it is any individual's responsibility to put themselves in a um, dangerous or uncomfortable situation. We can't expect that of people. We have to try to cultivate an environment where that's possible. It is on us as a society to create an environment where we're willing to change. Um, And for those of us who have the opportunity, for those of us who have the gumption, if you will, to reach out despite the discomfort, to say, this can't stand, this has to change, that's wonderful. But there's a lot of people, for whatever reason, be it economic means or unrelated mental illness or familial obligation, that don't have that opportunity and can't always find themselves getting out of that space. Um, So while it is important to while it is important to go beyond that environment for the sake of advocating for the rights of the trans community in general, I would never tell any one individual that they are wrong inherently for remaining there. Right. And especially because, you know, as growing up, I think in most cultures, sex ed, especially when it comes to sexual identity, it's, it's very black and white. It's binary. So if you're, uh, quote unquote, a normal little boy or a normal little girl, you're exposed to these concepts constantly and you're constantly being reinforced that you're a good little boy, you're a good little girl. But I think for people who are trans, they're pushed to the side. They never have that experience. And I think those safe spaces later on in life kind of helps out on what um, I can only imagine they missed out on, on a lot throughout their life. Yeah, absolutely. I think the reality of our culture of our civilization is for most people sex is what one does not who one is um the idea of gendered behavior or gendered interactions doesn't really come up until you get into the sort of thing that would come up in a sex ed class Mm -hmm. Mm. that is at least for me where a lot of dysphoria came from and for those who don't know uh who are listening dysphoria is sort of the inherent discomfort that any person experiences when something in their psychology, something in their mind is not concordant with their body, their presentation, their occupation of physical space. Uh, It is frequently used to represent the discomfort that trans people specifically feel, but that is not necessarily always the case. However, for the purposes of this podcast, you can assume that if I am talking about dysphoria, it is through the lens of the trans experience that I have lived. But I, I, I want to just touch on something you said earlier while we were talking about the internet, that you said that not all trans people are dysphoric. Can you give me an example of a non-dysphoric trans person? Sure. So 
you don't have to feel discomfort with who you are to know that who you are is not concordant with who you present as. Strictly speaking, if you identify as trans, uh, if you go out into the world and here's an example hypothetical, there's an individual who identifies as female, uh, but for all intents and purposes presents male, doesn't really have a problem with that. Their closest friends and community know who they are and how they choose to identify, but they make no attempt to change anything. That person is still trans. That person is still a woman. Uh, even though they're not feeling that discomfort that drives them to change their presentation. A big part of that, and there's any number of reasons this could be true, but a, a big part of it in my experience is some people are less beholden to what we identify as gendered than other people are. I mean, if I, which I will do later tonight, if I wear a women's pantsuit to... Uh, to court, to a law class, to what have you, people will see that as inherently gendered. But some people don't experience things that way. They recognize that all of these institutions of our culture are socially constructed. They're ultimately arbitrary. And so an individual who either inherently or consciously says, you know what, none of that stuff really matters to me. I don't experience the inherent discomfort that arises from presenting in a traditionally masculine or traditionally feminine way, they're not experiencing dysphoria, but they're still trans. Mm -hmm. Huh. So mm. there's no one way, right or wrong, to express your... Certainly not. ...trans identity. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with the whole uh, idea that language, ideas, and behavior are social constructs. But here's where it gets tricky, right? And kind of goes back to what I was saying, because is how do we redefine the rules of the game right so that as to for them to be more accepting for people who don't uh either align perfectly with just being uh, a, a male boy who identifies as a boy and a female girl who identifies as a girl how what's the best approach um do you think that the trans community the approach they're taking today currently is in the right path or does it need some realignment and I guess I would just say, what is that approach? Because Well, know. therein lies the question, yeah, right? right. I, I don't know that there is an approach that the trans community is taking. Mm -hmm. I would say that every individual trans person has to plot their own path. And insofar as there is a community action, I think the vast majority of that energy is put towards being able to go to the bathroom without being assaulted or threatened with arrest. I mm -hmm. think that... Right. approach goes towards being able to walk the streets at night without being accused of seducing someone and then murdered when the criminal gets off for the trans panic defense as the courts have so pleasantly defined wait that's a real thing oh yes so where is that happening you know how manslaughter it can be like a passion, heat of the moment sort of thing Sure, yeah. in, in a lot of jurisdictions. Yeah. Many state jurisdictions have decided... Oh, we're it's good. all right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> many jurisdictions have decided that an individual who... An individual who engages in potentially sexual activity uh, with a trans individual mm -hmm. who they do not know is trans and then discovers that fact, presumably due to the biology of that individual and then attacks them for it, is, is so surprised and disgusted and outraged that they attack them and maybe kill them. Uh, the courts have decided that that is 
considered the transpanic defense. That is a sufficiently heat of the moment response. Is like an affirmative defense, in, or has nothing? To yeah, do with you're that? you're basically saying yes, I, like, I I did this act, but I was justified in doing so because right. a surprise dick. This is you crazy. know, basically. Yeah, no, that's insane. Yeah, that's, and and I'm not making. I mean, look it up. That's uh, it's a right. thing that happens all over the place. I hadn't heard of that. And I it's heard of it either. really just atrocious that our legal system would allow this affirmative defense that creates danger for trans people. I mean, it is dangerous for trans people to exist in a social setting and to flirt and to, like, romance because of that. It's almost like, what, should we be carrying a scarlet letter? Should we alert the entire world lest we induce trans panic? Or perhaps maybe the community just needs to be more okay with trans people as a concept. And that's the goal to which we are ultimately working, we, quote-unquote, Right, the royal we. I, I do have a, uh, a more focused question, I guess, is some of the stuff you see online these days, and I know that citing to online conversation is probably the worst idea when trying to have an intellectual discussion, but you do see a, a lot of policy concerns about children who want to transition and what the best course of action for that is. There's a lot of debate surrounding the use of hormone replacement therapy for young kids and the potentially detrimental effects of that. And also there was that, that study out of Brown University, I'm sure you saw it, uh, the, the rapid onset gender dysphoria amongst teenagers and um, how it seems to be like this social contagion element to it a young, amongst young kids too. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like what, what, what should the bargaining chip be, I guess, in terms of... So I don't have... I don't have any evidence right in front of me, uh, so please take everything I say with a grain of salt. However, if my memory serves me correctly, the vast majority of the medical community that has read and examined that Brown study has come to the conclusion that rapid onset gender dysphoria is frankly nonsense. Yeah, there, there, was, um, there was some criticism about it potentially being a self-selecting sample. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because there, this is an argument that comes up a lot uh, I, I read a lot of forums that perhaps I shouldn't for my own mental well-being um, <laughs> with regard to how people view and think about trans individuals, um, especially trans children, because the think about the children message is one that has been a tried and true success for socially conservative alarmists for decades. I mean, it happened for the gay community before the trans community. It happened for the black and other ethnicities community before that. The reality is that there is an established doctrine for handling young individuals who seek to transition. And that doctrine is widely accepted across basically every medical community that I've encountered, whether or not it is adhered to by those individual medical practitioners who are faced with this question is another story, but that's a problem for another day. The reality is that children are allowed to age up until they're 11, 12, or 13, around the time when puberty starts taking place. Uh, they're monitored by a psychiatrist during that time to see how the formulations of their gender manifest. Um, and if indeed that impulse remains over the years, and to be clear, they are taken at face value. There is no seeking attention or expecting some sort of duplicitous nature expectation uh, from these doctors. Assuming all is up, up and on board, they say, all right, we're going to give you 
puberty delaying medication and we're going to eventually give you the hormones of the chosen uh, sex and gender that you identify as. That's really all there is to it. And frankly, I don't know that it's a particularly radical solution. I think that if, for example, uh, an intersex child who has the possibility or reality to socially present as either male or female uh, were to walk into a doctor's office and say, I've chosen to live my life as a man or as a woman. Uh, I would like to take the necessary hormones because my body doesn't produce those naturally due to a reality of my physiology. The doctor would say, absolutely, no problem. There's not going to be an inquisition. There's not going to be a, well, are we sure that you identify this way? It's just mm -hmm. the recognition that kids who are 10, 11, 12, and 13 have a pretty well-established and innate understanding of what their gender identity is. You weren't wondering when you were 11 or 12 what gender you were, were you? No, no, never, no. And I would wager to say that most trans people aren't either. And those who are, are not doing so with reference to their own beliefs, but rather with reference to whether that identity will be accepted by the community at large. That is where the hesitance, that is where the quote-unquote flip-flopping might come from. It's where my flip-flopping came from. I knew for a fact that I was a woman, but I told myself, I'm going to repress this because it's safe, because otherwise I might be disowned. Like, mm -hmm. I think that was an irrational fear, but it was nevertheless one that I held at the time. I think it's very rational because as human beings, we want to be accepted. We want to be acknowledged. And the fear of being rejected uh, is so overwhelming that... Um, I guess the easy way out is just to push it in. I think the easy way out is the wrong way to term it. I think the natural course to take is to, you know, suck it in because I think we've all done that at one point or another with certain things that have happened to us. I guess the natural inclination, I right, would say. Right, not, right. Not natural course. Exactly, in, natural you know, inclination. So Not so, making a normative statement about exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I have a follow-up question, which you talked about. You mentioned the physical reality and how there's this dysphoria between your physiological state your, your your biological body and your mental state and right now we tend to want to align the physical aspect with the mental state um, and i think there are some who argue that we could just as easily try to adjust the mental state to the physical aspect what are your takes on that well you can't okay um i, I you just can't i the, this this theoretical argument gets posited a lot with the, the like if you could hit a button and suddenly be cis would you and that's all well and good as a thought experiment but the reality is that the only way that people have really attempted to align one's gender identity with their physiology is various forms of conver conversion therapy and mm -hmm. To a, to a degree, those forms of conversion therapy are abusive, they are harmful, they are detrimental to an individual's mental and physical well-being. Uh, they are in service of the realities of an inflexible culture and not the realities of the individual who is put through them. Frankly, I think it's a heinous and staggeringly evil thing to put somebody through. Mm -hmm. um, I've known people who have gone through it, and it's often religiously motivated. It's never considerate of the needs and well-being of the individual. I, it's just not a reality that we can ethically allow mm -hmm. for children or adults um, to, if, if we hope to be kind and courteous and ethical to the trans community. Mm -hmm. It is 
the same fundamentally as saying, well, couldn't we just pray the gay away? Couldn't mm -hmm. we just put right. them through shock therapy to make them straight? It is just as vile. It is just as ethically bankrupt. Right. And I don't think there's further argument to be had. And, and at, that's at the psychological level, um, which, and, and I agree. And, and this, is, this is not the position I'm taking. Oh, no, I've I just, totally, yeah. I've heard it. So, so that's, that's one way that people try to, quote, unquote, cure it, right? Get the dysphoria to go away, which is what you just mentioned. But there's also those that say that you could also do it through drugs. So down to the molecular level, right? Where you could tweak the brain to either suppress the dysphoria or make it go away. I mean, I guess. I mean, we're far from that. Just to go on well, the I record, mean, there's nothing. Yeah, that I, I guess this kind of goes to the question of this a is, soul, this is, right? right? I mean, like, well, this is just philosophical. What is the essence of a but, human being? But we do have <clears throat> we do have instances like of people who suffer from psychological like um, um, psychosis or, or schizophrenia, where drugs tend to either um, suppress uh, whatever the body wants to exert, or or, or there's some sort of I hate the word correction, but there's some sort of, 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 of um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's an effect on the body, right? So I'm just, I'm just thinking down the road, if that were ever a, a, a feasibility, I wonder what the trans community's take on it would be. If, if you'll allow me a metaphor, and this isn't a perfect parallel, but I think it's one that helps. If, if a child is born without an arm, you don't give them a drug that alters their brain at the molecular level to make them think they never had an arm. Mm -hmm. you, you make them a prosthetic arm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that is a fairly like cut and dry. Of course, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if a person identifies as a man or as a woman and that isn't congruent with their body, we don't molecularly alter their brain so that they think in a way that is more analogous with our culture we allow them change to the change their body right yeah or change the culture right. right yeah that seems totally reasonable to me but it was a good question no absolutely uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, it's important it's to just because um, again this is not what i believe but i just foresee that this is the argument that could evolve from especially the religious side uh which is so obsessed with aligning our mental state with whatever uh, is physically observed. That's certainly true. Um, I don't want to get too far into the realities of the trans community's relationship with organized religion. Um, mm -hmm. Spoilers: It's not great. <laughs> <laughs> but could you could yeah. you see religious institutions as a force for good down oh, sure. the road? Absolutely. I think okay. what would have to change, I guess, from the way they're. I would argue them. that religious institutions in many cases, already are forces for good. I mean, it depends on the religion you're talking about, right? I don't think... As or far the as... social issue, right? Right, yeah. exactly. I, I don't think... Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think the, the Buddhist tradition has anything of particular objection to the trans identity. I don't think Sikhs have any particular objection. Well, actually, that might be a bad example because of concerns about what sort of medicines you're allowed to take, but that's beside the point. Sikhs are very peaceful people. Sikhs are awesome. I love the Sikhs. Mm -hmm. I, I want to turn back to when we were discussing hormone therapy for, for young kids, I, I wonder if you're aware of any evidence that that has positive outcomes on uh, the mental health of, of kids that go under it. And if you had had access to that kind of treatment, would you have done it? Oh, that? God, in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, I have read a number of studies. Um, there are a few, like one or two ever, that say like, oh, most trans people detransition and nobody's happy. And those have been 
universally debunked as junk science Mm -hmm. at best and outwardly hostile and motivated at worst. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast majority of studies I've read, and I, I wish, I mean, maybe I can put a supplemental thing up that has these studies in question um, with the podcast in the description. Yeah, that would be um, fine. But the vast majority of studies that I've encountered are very clear on the science. The behavioral observations that most people who transition are thrilled to have done so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, uh, what's your biggest concern these days now that you've started to make the physical transition and, uh, you're living as a woman and what, what what worries you the most? Well, I'm really worried. I have to take the bar later this year and that's going to be hard. <laughs> um, so just normal life I've stuff. Got, yeah. I've got some homework I need to get done. Uh, that's, I really don't want to do it. You're being coy, but that's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think that the most appealing thing about transitioning is allowing the trans element of my identity to step back. I think the reality is that so much of my wavelength has been consumed by I'm miserable. I need to transition. I need to present as I identify <coughs> that now finally I've, I've freed up that Ram. I've freed up that disc space to allow for a more productive, more engaging reality. I think I am a better person, a better attorney, a better what have you having transitioned. Yeah. Um, with regards to what you actually meant by the question, uh, <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm worried logistically. It's going to be very difficult to get my name changed, to change gender markers on driver licenses, to get my insurance and credit cards turned over, uh, to convince my parents to give me all of my documents so that I can do those things. Mm-hmm. The system that we have built is not fond of letting that sort of infrastructural change happen. I think in Illinois, uh, in order to change your name, you have to publish the intention to change your name in the newspaper. Yeah, in the newspaper for like a week. Yeah, Yeah, no way, really? Yeah, Yeah. it's totally asinine. It's also kind of fine because nobody reads that anyway, so who cares? (laughs) But, (laughs) But it's just all of these sort of anachronistic realities where in an ideal world, I mean, you'd be able to call your call your state DMV and be like, hey, I'm changing my gender marker. And they'd be like, K, because at the end of the day, what does it matter? (laughs) Right, right. It's as worthwhile as eye color. Uh, Is there any, uh, the only thing that I think about as a former uh, emergency medical technician with the gender markers on the licenses is often if we would approach a scene and somebody would be unconscious, the gender marker on the license would inform the type of treatment that we would give. I mean, Certain medications get metabolized by women, uh, I guess I'll say biological, born in the body of a woman differently or uh, in, in different uh, pharmacokinetics than that administered to a man or a biological. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, no, you're fine. No, but I'm, that's, I'm that's, stepping over my own feet. But that's so interesting because then it would be uh, from a medical perspective, in case of an emergency for a trans person, it would be beneficial to have some sort of marker on their identity on their identity card. That is true to an extent. Uh However, the vast majority of cases that I've read actually show that trans women metabolize um, substances and their bodies behave metabolically and biologically in the same manner as cis women do. Um, The the taking of hormones alters that process sufficiently so that having 
having mail on that driver's license, that's actually inaccurate as to how my body processes things. That's so interesting. Um, um, so that would that would pertain to uh, trans women who are on hormones. Correct. Yeah. And right. as it stands right now, you actually have to get a letter from a doctor or a psychiatrist or what have you stating that you've been on hormones in order to change your gender marker in Illinois. Oh, okay. I think that's true. Don't cite me on that. I'm not going to cite you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I know that you were just making reference to how arduous those procedures are to change your gender marker, but I might actually be in favor of something like that. But where just I think from, that's warranted from a right, medical standpoint. Right, just because I used to be in the business of saving lives, not giving somebody a double dose of something that they can't metabolize, you know, I mean, and uh, not killing people, so to speak. I, I, <laughs> I am, let it, let the record show that I am in favor of not killing people. Um, I, I don't think this that's a, a controversial controversial <laughs> argument to make. Right. I think that any individual who argues that there are not biological realities um, to how your body presents and how you were born is... I won't, I'm trying to be charitable here, is misguided. Um, right. There are realities to the kind of medical treatment that I receive um, that I may receive in the future. I mean, I'm if I were to be prescribed birth control, that would obviously be unnecessary, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like there are contexts in which the trans identity needs to be discussed. Right. I would wager to guess that the vast majority of those contexts don't come up in everyday life. Right. As right. far as government documentation goes, I am of the opinion, sure, if you want to say, like, on my birth certificate that I'm a trans woman, that's fine. I mean, I, I, if, if what you're saying about the hormone replacement therapy is true, then I have no problem with it. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm really only... I think, first of all, the government should be out of the business of doing almost everything. I, the fact that we have a file cabinet full of our personal information down at, you know, the, the vital records office is highly disturbing to me. I'm only interested, really, in those discrete examples of when is it going to save somebody's life. I mean, I think that that's the only, Absolutely. you know, sane government interest in what gender you are at all or who you right. choose to be. But um, kind of going back to the Internet argument, which is a tool like, um, like you know, keeping records of people, even if it's just to save life, it's a, it's, a, it's a tool that's intended to help people, but it can also be misused. Yes. Yeah. That's where yeah. potential danger can pop up. I have another question, Alice. Uh, but before, before oh. you ask that question, okay. let me just answer the question you asked her from my sister's perspective. Uh, which question? Which you asked, what's the most, um, I think you said, what's the most challenging part of your transition today? Or, oh, yeah. Well, what's worrying you? I think right. What's were, worrying you? So yeah. for my sister, it was a little different because, interestingly enough, in Colombia, that's where I'm from, in Colombia, procedurally, <laughs> right, but many listeners may not, procedurally, it was not such a hassle for her to do the, you know, legal changes. Really? She was able to change her name, get her a new passport, get a new driver's license fairly easily. You definitely don't have to publish your intention in the newspaper. The yeah. biggest hurdle for her at the moment was social acceptance because although politically or, or legally it's accepting, socially it's very close. Well, it's a very religious Yeah, uh, it's uh, like 90% Catholic down right. there. Yeah. Um, she, right now she lives in Canada and she, she hates living in Colombia just because it, it's, we're just so backwards in the way, just in terms of acceptance. So, so her, her biggest, I guess, um, concern now is it's a question of relativity. 
because for her everything's moving too slow she, mm. she, she 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 has a vision of where she wants to be right and it's not moving fast enough and yeah. for everybody else around her uh you know my close family and friends and society it's moving too fast mm. and you're like well take it down you're not giving me enough time to process so it's kind of trying to find that middle ground of where we can all move at a speed where uh, everyone's quote-unquote comfortable sure and if you'll allow me a moment to check my own privilege, I want to be clear that my experience is very much a privileged one. Yes, there have been speed bumps and hurdles um, that come with being a trans individual, but I'm also a white trans individual from a wealthy family with numerous educational opportunities and the opportunity to, amongst other things, walk down the street at night without being attacked. Mm-hmm. I think, just to, for an example, the vast majority of the women who have been killed and then subjected to that trans panic defense that we were talking about have been people of color. Um, the trans persons of color are almost universally more disadvantaged when it comes to social situations like safety and access mm-hmm. to healthcare than people in my position are. And I think that's really important uh, to emphasize. It is not, we, we were talking about the trans panic thing earlier, it's not the responsibility of any trans individual to again, wear a scarlet letter and identify like, here's right. ha- here's what I am, here's my biology. Um, but for a lot of trans people of color specifically, if they're in that sort of situation and don't do that, right. they could die. And right. there is a very strong possibility that they could right. die. And there's an v- even stronger possibility that if some act of violence is uh, exhibited upon them, that the government may well not do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I want to... I just wanted to kind of set that out and make it clear that while I have certainly in, encountered struggles in my life, they are not to be placed next to or adjacent the far greater struggles of the trans person. Of color I, I, I second that from my sister. You know, this is not to say that her transition has been easy, but she has had it fairly easier, way easier than, you know, what most people have to go through. Actually, something that was interesting was when she came out, apart from the shock of, oh, she's trans, what shocked people the most was how accepting my family was. Is that right? Right. I don't know your family, uh, but... um, Just (coughs) Colombian society tends to be conservative. A little buttoned up. Right. Uh, And they usually expect at least some sort of pushback. But Mm -hmm. the fact that they were so uh, willing to work with her, I I hope it made a positive impact on people. Yeah, and I was was thinking about what you were saying. Uh, This is not really insightful but how difficult it is to get the government to change your name and all these things and you know change your gender marker and uh and i was saying that we should just get the government out of the business of doing any of that but it made me think of the fact that my gender has been making women go through that to change their name for like mm-hmm. centuries <laughs> and then we built the bureaucracy to to make it difficult anyway so I want to shift into the fact that you are going to be entering a profession, the legal profession that has a lot of, that holds onto steadfastly a lot of these old vestiges from quote unquote, the good old days, you know? Wait, uh, really? <laughs> Attorneys? <laughs> um, this is news to me. Uh, what do you think in these days? I mean, the bar is coming up, you know, and, and you're going to be going into this field. Um, I know that when we were talking the other day or I I guess I I heard in passing that you thought it would be better to make this transition during the last semester of law school so that way 
when you go on job interviews, you are fully presenting as Alice, you know, well, what are you, are you nervous at all about, you know, what, what you think the acceptance is going to be like in the legal community? Most certainly. I think that until I am confident that I, the, the, the term of art is pass, so to speak, as I would, I would say you already do, but well, well thanks. Um, <laughs> Until I am confident in that fact, I think there will always be a latent nervousness about, like, what if this person is an alt-right Republican who thinks that trans people should be deported? Because I've talked to those before, and some of them go to our law school. Like, it's an unfortunate reality, but a reality nevertheless. Um, I think I would be, I think I would be remiss not to recognize that possibility. However that nervousness doesn't necessarily prevent my willingness to act, so to speak. While I may be nervous, I am more confident now than I ever have been. I think it is much easier to be an out trans woman than it is to be a pre-transition, oh, this is a thing I'll have to do eventually, but it's going to be this big thing when I tell people and I'm going to have to change all my professional contacts. The rabbit's out of the hat now. Um, <laughs> there is there is no turning back at this point. I right. mean, that's not true. If well, I wanted to, I could, but I don't. So, I mean, I, I, I do want to dig into that a little bit more, but sure. um, uh, what you just said about how you feel more confident now, I, I, like I was saying at the beginning, how... I used to get this anxious feeling around you like and that's just melted away since you've transitioned because I feel like I'm just partly a part of it is just picking up on less anxiety coming out of you. I mean, you really have been able to scrub your hard drive of a lot of that and uh, you do just look happier, you know, it, not to say that you went around moping before, but like <laughs> you, a little you, bit. you, but you look happy and you look confident. And I mean, even the other day, like when you said like, oh, come get coffee with me. Like, I just don't think that that's something that you would have done before, you know? So what 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 practice of law are you looking at and what areas of the country are you looking to practice in? So it's funny that you ask. I have not decided the answer to that question yet. I think for the first two and a half years of law school, I was so hung up on the realities of my impending transition that I couldn't look beyond it. I was really struggling to formulate the what comes next after, because it's just such a fundamental sea change of like, oh, everything is different now. And yeah, you're almost waiting for your life to begin. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so there are new realizations that I'm coming to. They're like, oh, I'm allowed to like and dislike different areas of law. Like I have this (laughs) self-confidence that allows me to be more selective with the sort of thing that I want to practice or pursue. That's crazy. It's it's That's crazy <laughs> to think that you weren't doing that. <laughs> it, it is. I was literally, look, I was basically told to go to law school from a young age. Like it was not, mm. not to say that I wasn't happy to do so, but it was very much a, this is what is expected of me sure. rather than this is what I wish to do. Mm-hmm. If I had my choice of career, I would have been a professional esports player, but that's... <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> There's st- no, I'm, I'm way too old. Those kids are all like 17, 18. Yeah. Um, There's a good documentary on Netflix about them, but... Oh, is good. there really? Yeah. But um, now it's different. Now I have the opportunity to really embody the space that I've entered and to say, like, I belong here. This right. is something that I deserve because of the work that I've done. And therefore, I'm going to explore the options that work best for me. I mean, 
let the if I can be a case study for the wonderful benefits of transition, then by all means, uh, if, if parents are wondering whether their kids should do this or not, they should uh, <laughs> if they want to. And if they're confident in that selection, they should absolutely do it because I've never been happier in my entire 25 years of existence than the past week and a half. Like that's you're only 25. I'm only 25. <laughs> Young and young and um i know i look like an old hag (laughs) (laughs) can't just ask a woman her age (laughs) you disclosed it (laughs) (laughs) so are you thinking chicago or you think i i know i heard you talking about dc a little bit the other day in class i mean so So, what's what's the dream the dream yeah Um, where can we expect to see alice in 10 years Well, assuming that the government opens within the next 10 years, I would love to go to D.C. Um, I think, again, and I, I don't want to sound overly prophetic or like, oh, I'm this chosen one. Like, mm-hmm. that's not true. But I do have a very particular set of skills, a set of skills that makes me a nightmare for people like I thought you were going to quote like Taken. I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think I would love to, in an ideal world, go to Washington and inform policy. I think yeah. that there aren't enough trans voices in I government. I agree. Are um, there any? There's a few. Yeah. Uh, I know there was a woman in Virginia. Uh, her name's Danica Rome. She was just elected to the... Um, was it Virginia or was it Maryland? I don't know. One of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was just elected to the state legislature there. She was the oh, first okay. trans woman uh, to be elected in such a capacity there. The, the, it's starting. People are beginning to branch out and recognize that trans women have a lot to offer in terms of uh, government policy. I think that I went down to D.C. Uh, in the middle of last semester uh, to have some informational interviews with some folks who work on the Hill there. And the number one thing that I came away with uh, from that experience was that it is expensive and difficult for anyone other than a wealthy white individual to go and work on the Hill for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, The logistical and monetary barriers that exist towards starting that career in government are so significant that most people can't do it. And that results 10, 20 years down the line in a remarkable disparity in the sort of faces and voices that we're getting in politics, be that elected officials or those who work for them. I would love to do what I can, the little bit that I can to disrupt that reality. I have the educational attainment. I have the means. I think I have the personality. Um, I would love the opportunity to be a trans voice in a place that desperately needs it. You're also one of the best spoken people I've ever met in my entire life. I remember I made a comment to you like the first week of law school. I was like, it's like somebody took a thesaurus and just replaced <laughs> half the words in, in what you say because it, it just comes out so naturally too. It's like not, it's not overwrought. It's you not, understand me though, right? Yeah, like, no, I, I understand yeah. you. But Whenever like, you raise your hand in class, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> this is going to be fun. So I don't know if you're comfortable, if you're not comfortable talking about it, we can just cut this, but what's been the personal life What's your personal life been like with the people you grew up with and your family since coming out as transgender? The vast majority of my family has been remarkably supportive. And when I say family, I mean extended and 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 uh, local. Like, what's the word? Nuclear? I don't know. Yeah, nuclear. Um, Nucleus, yeah. <laughs> there, are, there have been some hang-ups. I don't, I don't want to get into too many details. Um, it's a little, little personal. But, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, there have been difficulties. Uh, my my parents are both born to working class Chicago families. Uh, there is a lot of 
sort of social disparity that has existed, uh, but people are coming around. I mean, we live in the age of the internet. It is almost impossible not to become a little more socially progressive just by virtue of osmosis in this day and age. Yeah, no, um, I, I agree. You have, to, you have to willfully wall yourself off from that kind of thing mm -hmm. if you're going to maintain the sort of socially conservative realities of 10 years ago at this point. So there have definitely been difficulties. Um, it has been a little touch and go at times, but I am confident moving forward. Right. There's also, you know, what people say and what people do. There's some people who say, well, for the, the case, I guess I'm speaking for my sister, but that would say that they're accepting, but they would distance themselves and just their uh, um, relationship would just change drastically. That's true. Other people would not say much, but would come closer through their actions. Yeah, I think that's actually an interesting point because I want to spare a thought for the families of trans individuals, not because they have it very difficult, but because in reality, and I can recognize this, change is hard. Um, yeah. Acknowledging yeah. that this person that you thought you knew all of for their entire formative existence, mm -hmm. acknowledging that you missed like one of the top three most important things about them. Right, is right, right. Yeah. Difficult. And especially right. for parents, I can understand how that can be hard. Right. Um, I, mean, I, I was thinking about this the other day, and I, as I'm, you know, every passing year, I get a little bit more compassionate and, you know, empathetic towards people. But I, I feel like it would just be really hard, you know, mm -hmm. to, to find out that your son or daughter was, was trans. And it's not because. I'm not accepting. It's just because I know the road is going to be difficult, right. and it's no, also it's it, also letting go of like all, you know, or reframing and changing the resolution of some of the hopes and dreams that you had for them. You know, and that 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 it's almost like a loss, but it's also like you are gaining this whole new, mm -hmm. whole new uh, set of, um, of wonderful things. Really you know? interesting, you said that because um, I once asked my mother how how she was able to accept my sister so openly. And what she said was, I had to mentally kill your brother. He passed away. I know that sounds harsh, and that my reaction at first was, why? And she's like, because if you don't do that, you're not going to move on. I'm, I would have always seen him as my boy who transitioned. So what I had to do was mentally let go of him and recognize that I gained a, a baby girl. Yeah, and by doing that, I was able to be way more accepting. Um, I, I, I yeah. thought that was very courageous and very hard to do, very hard, because it's also what you were saying, Alice, which is this is something that's been cooking in your brain for years, and for relatives, it's from one day to the other. Yeah, I mean, I guess what was, so we use the word like coming out and stuff a lot, but uh, I guess what was that process like? And um, usually, it's you know, something like a, a big moment that happens once. And I, I want to know what your experience with that was. I, I always envisioned, um, I grew up in the first Facebook generation, right? And you, yeah. you'd think like, you see those Facebook posts sometimes. It's like, just so everyone knows, like, I'm gay, I'm trans. Like, and, that's, <laughs> and that's the coming out. And it's, it's always been kind of amusing to me. Uh -huh. My, I've come out like four times. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's taken me 25 years. But I, I first came out, quote unquote, when I discovered uh, at the same time my love for data privacy and security because my father got into my email when I was 11 and discovered that I had been like subscribing to posts on trans forums. Ah. <laughs> um, and that was 
a remarkable invasion of privacy, but we've moved past that. <laughs> it didn't go very well. And as I've said, we, I basically repressed for a number of years until I got to college mm-hmm. uh, and then tried the next format of coming out, which was I sent a letter. Um, I sent a, a very professional you can imagine the, the kind yeah, of letter right. i think me but like less aware of how social interactions work <laughs> uh which i know is difficult to imagine but like there is a tier <laughs> below me um <laughs> oh, and God. so that letter was i it would have belonged in the circuit court to be honest with the way and it was sent to my parents so it's like, right right like, to whom it may concern <laughs> um dear sir or madam yeah right um I have the honor to be your most obedient servant. Um, (laughs) That didn't go super great either. Uh Um, There was a whole lot of sort of familial disruption, threats of pulling me out of school for my own well-being. Like, yeah. And so the third time I was just like, forget it. Let's just start. Uh And so I did. And it it was an important lesson in agency, I think. Mm -hmm. I had always been asking permission right to, waiting for somebody else to let you right to gate. say it's yeah. okay and i finally realized that that wasn't going to happen um, right that exactly. the only arbiter of my own identity is me yeah and so here we are and that's it's it's not a typical experience i would argue that there is no typical experience in this case sure every family is different every community is different every interaction is different and there is no one story that is more or less meaningful or less impactful than the other um but i am very happy to be <laughs> at the uh the denouement if you will of my own story <laughs> and getting ready for the sequel yeah yeah <laughs> let's take a quick break okay and, said we would be back and we are back great all right so why don't don't you had a couple questions yeah i have a couple of questions so i'll start first with um alice your past uh growing up your childhood um how what's your relationship looking back at who who you were at that age if you look at a picture is it something that you're you embrace is it something that you want to put in a closet and lock away i (laughs) i'm sorry it's a difficult question, right? Like, I don't know that I have a concrete answer for it yet. I'm still pretty early in this sort of social transition process. Uh, so I haven't given it a lot of thought. I can tell you what my parents will think, and they will think that they should have all of their pictures of the old me on every wall they can possibly reach. But that almost seems like a tacit, like, denial of the reality of the present situation. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like why not take new pictures of me and put those up? Like I'm, I'm graduating law school in five months. That right. seems, take a picture of that and put it up. I don't know. Right. But so, so say they do, they take pictures of you and they were celebrating who you are, but they also want to, you know, celebrate and remember your childhood. Mm-hmm. Would that be offensive? I think for me, and again, this is purely a personal yeah. preference. Mm-hmm. Sure. I was still a woman then. It just didn't show as well in the pictures. You could call me the supreme tomboy, if you will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm not 
I don't get as much anxiety and dysphoria from just looking at those pictures because it's a real part of my past. Mm -hmm. That might change down the road once, I mean, if in 10 to 15 years from now, the only remnant of my past as a apparent social masculine individual is the photos on my parents' mantle and we have a family dinner and I bring a significant other over or something like I don't want that to be there. I don't want to have to like, oh, let me explain. Right. I think that's the biggest. It kind of gets at a bigger issue of the trans experience, especially for those who don't pass or are early in their transitions, is everything requires so much explanation. Right. It's, right. It, you meet someone, but you haven't really met them until you've read them the two-page PDF of okay, so here's how everyone thinks of me, but here's how I actually identify, and here's the expectations that I have. Mm -hmm. It's really frustrating, and honestly, it prevents it prevented me, at least, from forming meaningful relationships because I didn't want to deal with the logistics of forming those bonds over top of the sort of syntax of having to explain who I was. Now right, right. now it's implied. Now people look at me and say, oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot, it's, it's like automating a process. A lot of that work is done. I think having those pictures up on the wall as the baseline example throws a wrench in that process and invites mm -hmm. questions and invites discussion that I might not necessarily want to have. Right. Um, so right. maybe down the road, that will be a bigger priority is putting that stuff, not ignoring that it exists. If I'm with my family, I'm not going to pretend I didn't live with them for 18 years. Sure. Um, sure. but just in pleasant company in like out and about, I wouldn't want to identify that as a thing. I, I, I think that's right. I know personally, I, I almost feel like I'm a totally different person. Like every couple of years, you know, I look mm -hmm. back on the decisions I made when I was a little kid and, and I don't feel necessarily I'm related to that person or like that I feel beholden to the things like that little kid liked or mm -hmm. even you know throughout high school and an undergraduate I mean I feel like that we as human beings deserve the right to move on and create new iterations of ourselves hopefully better ones you right. know and uh, <clears throat> so I, I, I think it's a great question about how Alice chooses to relate to her childhood but I I'm thinking about it in just my own self, and I haven't gone through nearly as big a, a transformation as, as she has, but I, I also don't really feel related to that person either, you know? Mm -hmm. so. And what's interesting, too, is you mentioned that since you were a little girl, you were a girl, right? right. You were just a supreme tomboy, as you <laughs> mentioned. But it's interesting because when I talk about my transgender sister... And I'm talking about our childhood. I always refer to her as, you know, I either use her her given birth name or I will say when we were boys. But it's it's interesting that to her, she was always a girl, you know. So even even if in the picture she looks like a supreme tomboy, as you said, Alice, I will always be, you know, the right way to address it, I guess, would be like when, you know, like look at a pretty girl you were, you know. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I do think that's important. It's very difficult. I understand the, the temporal reality of looking back on here's how everything appeared for all intents and purposes. But that's the nice thing about being human, right, is even when we're dealing with things in the past, we can get new information and reevaluate our understanding of the situation based on that information. Absolutely. I was a history major. That's what we did for a living. Right, right. I living, mean, we didn't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that's so insightful because even now as, you know, an adult, I, I look back on the choices I made when I was a young person and and 
I only just understand them, you know? And so being able to import new information and understanding yourself better and, and being more at peace with who you are, I think really, you can't help but contextualize the past. I mean, the past is just the prologue, you know? Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. But, you know, so, so in, that, in that sense, I feel like the transgender experience is probably pretty congruent with the experience of everyone else, you know? And Funny how that works. Right, yeah. I mean, how about that? Common humanity. Who would have thought hmm. we are discovering great truths here on Dialogue to Nova? And, and that's kind of, that's the core of what an intersectional identity is, right? We are at once living entirely different experiences, but also analogous experiences in other ways. Uh, we have so many different facets and lenses through which we view and process the world. And to point to any one of those lenses and say, this is the lens that defines me, does a disservice to the other aspects of your identity. Yes, mm-hmm. I was a trans a trans woman growing up, but I was also a clarinet player. I was, all, to use innocuous examples, mm-hmm. I was, sure, I was sure. a video gamer. I was right. a student. Um, right. And those are all as valid to my experience as if some of them are a little more superfluous <laughs> as my gender identity is. Yeah. It, it um, kind of leads me to a second question I had, which is about the transition itself. I know a lot of transgender people see the transition merely as a means to an end. They simply wish to reach a point where strangers in the street cannot tell the difference of whether they are transgender people or not. Uh, others that I've met embrace the transgender within them. Um, you know, what's, what's your take on this? So, so this is a difficult subject. There is a very concerted focus in most trans communities, especially online, towards the notion of passing, towards, like, if I were to transition, would I be able to physically and physiologically reach a point where I was accepted mm-hmm. as a woman? I think that question presupposes a premise that is very harmful to all women exactly and that's why i ask because you see it a lot in like especially teenage girls where there's so much pressure you know to, to have a certain physical aspect and look uh and, and it creates so much stress and anxiety and i see this also a lot in the transgender community where there's uh, these as you said these communities online where are pressuring people who are in transition to act and look a certain way. And if you're not looking and acting in a certain way, then you're doing it quote unquote wrong. And it creates this anxiety that I don't think should be there in the first place. Well, so is that what you, what you meant? I I just want to, because I haven't thought about this. Um, When you said that that presupposes a set of precepts, is that what you were talking about was how we social sociologically view women or? Uh, It's definitely, it's a major part of it. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny in that, the one of the quintessential anxieties to being trans when I look in the mirror and say, God, my nose is so big. Like my, yeah, my brow think, ridge is yeah. gigantic. I don't like my shoe size. Like that mm. is not an experience exclusive to trans women by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, women on all ends of the gender spectrum and indeed men on all ends of the gender spectrum and any who fall between thereof have anxieties related to their physical appearance and how it relates to what their society has deemed to be like the or example of their chosen gender. And that's hugely problematic. We shouldn't be determining in our society what looks you need to have to be granted certain privileges, to be allowed to use certain bathrooms. Like that's an inherently arbitrary distinction. So it's important to recognize that while it is totally okay and there's nothing wrong with wanting to pass, there's nothing wrong with 
wanting to look pretty, with wanting to be traditionally feminine in whatever definition of the phrase that may be. It is equally important to recognize that if you don't do those things, that is okay as well, and that you should be afforded every opportunity uh, in your trans identity that a passing trans woman would. Mm, okay. <clears throat> I know you have another question. I only have one more, but I feel like mine is good to wrap up on, so why don't you okay. ask yours? Um, so this question, on a lighter note, it has to do with, you mentioned eSports, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm a gamer as well, maybe not hardcore, uh, but I know that gaming for me was a way to, you know, feel comfortable, express myself, fantasize about, you know, characters that I wanted to, you know, play a role in. So wondering if that had to do anything with you being a transgender woman growing up that you could express yourself uh, without creating too much ruckus, you know? It's funny. Um, my cousin, who actually goes to law school here at Loyola, um, used to always ask me, like, as a kid, like, why, why do you always pick the girl characters? And, of course, at the time, I was like, oh, you know, no reason. I just happen to like them. Uh, well, John, now you know. Um, <laughs> uh, but joking aside, it's true. I think, for me, the physical representations of, like, not only can I go into this environment and be stealthy about who I am, but I can craft experiences and... Um, engage with stories that I intrinsically relate to in my femininity, in my identity. That wasn't an opportunity I had in other places. I mean, books are great, but they're an inherently sort of separatist medium. Movies are the same way. You're a spectator. You're not participating in the art. But video games offer a sort of interface and a sort of participation that really appealed to me as a trans woman. It was something that really resonated and allowed me to cope with every other aspect of my life in which I wasn't able to do that. So I will always be forever thankful to the medium of video gaming for allowing me that opportunity and allowing me the space that I needed to explore, not just that I was a woman, but what kind of woman I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. So my last question is, um, you know, the, the other part of the reason that I wanted to have you on the show was just to reach out to you and let you know that I'm in your corner, you know, and that you know, now that, you know, we're closer friends. Like I'm one of the most loyal people you'll ever meet. And I would never do anything to try to hurt you. And furthermore, anybody who's in both of our presence will not try to do anything to hurt you because I'm a former boxer. So, <laughs> <laughs> but so my question is what are for people that want to help out and do like small things that are going to make your transition easier and, and be there for you and show support, what can they do? And I mean, I know that you're, answering for yourself here but i mean more broadly what what can what of what benefit to the transgender community do you think people like nico and myself can be you know what what, what can we do i think the there's a few things that i would suggest number one is be vocal in your acceptance and recognition of trans identities uh, i think that even folks who purport to accept the idea of being transgender it is something that doesn't come up very often. I, I, there was a thing in the news a couple days ago about Aaron Sorkin, who I love the work of Aaron Sorkin. The West Wing is my favorite show of all time. He said, I, I don't know what news program he was on, but he said something along the lines of, the left is too focused on the, the bathroom issue when there are bigger problems at bay. Don't infantilize or disregard the issues that the trans community faces just because it's a smaller community. Recognize that our 
political agendas and our social interests are just as valid as any that cis communities might have. Uh, second, I would say, and this is something you are doing right now, which is wonderful, create platforms for trans voices. Don't presuppose uh, when talking about issues uh, that trans people are directly involved in and when talking about issues critically that trans people aren't directly involved in. Don't presuppose that those voices don't need to be heard or that they might be the same as everyone else's. It's easy to invite a trans person onto a podcast to talk about trans issues. It doesn't necessarily come to mind to invite a trans person to talk about issues regarding welfare inequality or um, other social or economic issues. Uh, it's important to have our voice represented in every facet of society, in every facet of policy, in every facet of law. And that's something that doesn't happen very often because usually we are the token trans pundit on the trans issue. Not to say that that's what this is, but... What I'm hearing is that we have to have you back on to discuss welfare. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then third, just be open to people in your life who might be trans. I mean, that one kind of goes without saying, but it's so critically important. We can see media acceptance of trans people all day. I mean, when I was... 16, 17, I, Laverne Cox was kind of coming right, into right, yeah. her own as a major celebrity. And that was great. And for representation, for visibility, for greater societal implication. But for me, boots on the ground in Nashville, Tennessee, it didn't mean anything. It mm -hmm. was like, well, great, but I'm still terrified of coming out because I don't know that the people close to me in my life are supportive of this idea. So it, it kind of ties into the first point on being like visibly supportive, but just be cognizant of the people around you who may be exploring ideas of gender identity and show support such that we create an environment where any trans person feels comfortable coming out and being themselves. Awesome. Well, couldn't have said it better. We're at an hour and a half, so. Alice, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for this having me. This was a pleasure. Me. This was, yep, I second that. That was amazing. Thank you so much for coming, Alice. Absolutely. All right, and for Dialogue De Novo, I'm Jake Rome. I'm Nico Espina. All right. And we'll see you next week.